bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, October 8th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Mary Engel Pennington. If you have ever bought eggs or milk or chicken at the store and you didn't get salmonella, you have this woman to thank. Crazy as it sounds, today there was a time in the not-too-distant past when the connection between refrigerating perishable items and food poisoning wasn't completely understood. Sure, most people knew that cold helped to prevent things from spoiling quickly, but the understanding of the growth of bacteria on improperly stored food was still a developing field. To set the context for today's human in history, we need to do a quick recap of the history of refrigeration. Starting back at the beginning, 500 BC, people back then were using primitive ice houses to keep food from spoiling. And these were usually man-made underground chambers insulated with straw or hay located near bodies of water so that people could go get chunks of like snow and ice during the winter and hack it up into blocks and then pack it into the ice houses. Even ancient Egyptians were recorded leaving jars of food out overnight in winter to cool down. In the 1700s, the Scottish scientist William Cullen discovered how liquid that is heated super quickly becomes a gas that aids in the cooling process, basically the technology that powers today's refrigerators. Cullen didn't really try out his discovery too, too much or try to make any kind of day-to-day applications with it, but other people began to build off of what he discovered. In the early 1800s, an American businessman named Thomas Moore created a refrigerated box that could be used for transporting food. He called it the refrigeratory until he changed and patented the term refrigerator in 1803. During the 1800s, there was also a big migration of people from rural areas to big cities drawn by opportunities and increased work options. Therefore, the distance between people and their food sources began to lengthen dramatically. And used to the fresh produce and milk and eggs and meats that they had easy access to on the farm, recent city transplants began to demand quicker access to the foodstuffs that they'd become accustomed to. In 1934, an American inventor named Jacob Perkins invented the first closed-cycle vapor-compressed refrigeration system, which was a step in the right direction, but it also didn't really take off. By the 1840s, homes and cities were getting deliveries of large blocks of ice from a guy who was just known as the Iceman. The Iceman would leave a block of ice at your place, and if you were able to afford it, you could pay a carpenter to build an icebox of some sort to prolong the life of your ice and therefore your perishable goods. The iceboxes were usually insulated, and they had a drip pan that needed to be emptied every day. But by the 1800s, the late 1800s, the system just was starting to not work as well because it was causing a lot of sewage and dumping issues. And the ice boxes that were used in the transporting of foodstuffs were problematic too because the ice in them would obviously melt and it would make pools of water and that would lead to the food breaking down and molding or rotting. They tried like packing the food in like hay or moss but that basically just created a bed and breakfast for rodents. In 1876, German engineering professor Karl von Lind invented and patented the process of liquefying gas, and he invented the first actually efficient refrigerator. This invention totally phased out the whole block of ice to keep the milk from curdling thing and put every ice man out of business. But fridges were big and bulky, and they were more for commercial settings at that point and food production companies not 
actual homes. People needed smaller versions that could fit into their kitchens, and thankfully in 1913, Fred Wold invented the first electric fridge for domestic use. His version, again, didn't exactly take off, but it was once again a step in the right direction. Another invention of his, the ice cube tray, was a big hit, though. In the next five years, two companies, Frigidaire and Kelvinator, would work on refrigeration technology and fridge prototypes. Frigidaire was able to mass produce, which appealed to consumers and merchants alike, because people will buy more food at the store if they know that it's going to last longer. In the late 1920s, General Electric tossed their giant hat of money into the frigging, and they came up with the first fridge to really take off with over a million made. Three downsides to this version, though. Number one, it was pretty pricey. It was about $1,000 in the 1920s, which is about $13,000 today. It emitted a ton of heat, and the actual chemical used to cool it was usually sulfur dioxide. That's a toxic gas. Um, it's the gas that gives burned matches that, that real pungent smell. So the cost uh, ended up dropping uh, fairly quickly, thankfully. And by the next decade, there were over 6 million homes with a fridge, but it still contained toxic gas and it still made the kitchen a really, really hot room to be in. The 1930s were a crazy time for fridges. There was a lot of talk about the toxic gas being used. Einstein invented his own safer version called the Einstein fridge, and Freon was finally created as a safer way to keep food cold, and that just opened the floodgates for the fridge market. As frozen food began to gain in popularity, fridges began to include smaller freezer sections, and by the end of World War II, the fridge was a standard item in nearly every American home. By 1950, 90% of homes in the U.S. and 80% of rural houses had one in their kitchen. So where does Mary fit into all this? Let's find out together. So Mary was born on this day in 1872 to Henry and Sarah Maloney Pennington in Nashville, Tennessee, but they moved to Philadelphia when she was an infant to be closer to her maternal grandparents. Her younger sister followed two years later. When Mary was 12, she read a book on chemistry and she was hooked. She approached the principal of her boarding school about adding a chemistry class to the subject and was told that it would be impossible since chemistry was not a, quote, ladylike subject. She completed what would have been a degree in chemistry with a botany and zoology minor at the University of Pennsylvania in 1892 after only two years of study. And I say it would have been a degree because the university did not give degrees to women. So even though Mary had completed all the same classes that a man would have to take for the exact same degree, she was only given a certificate of proficiency as opposed to a Bachelor of Science. So she completes a PhD three years later, and she becomes a University of Pennsylvania Botany Fellow for a year. Then she does a two-year stint as a Chemistry Fellow at Yale. In 1898, she founded the Philadelphia Clinical Laboratory, and she took a post as Clinical Laboratory Director at the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. Because she's clearly a very lazy woman, in addition, she also accepted a position as a bacteriologist at the U.S. Department of Health. And it was here that her legacy really began to get rolling. While she was working at the Bureau of Health, she was tasked with finding better ways to sanitize milk and dairy products. She developed the dairy sanitation, refrigeration, preservation, and transportation standards that became statewide mandates and then nationwide ones. This sparked a career-long interest in food sanitation, refrigeration, and preservation practices. She moved over to the U.S. Department of Agriculture in 1905, becoming chief of the Food Research Laboratory the following year. 
The Food Research Lab was this brand new department, and it had been set up to support the recently passed Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, which was the first official set of laws in America that governed sanitation and refrigeration practices, animal slaughter and warehouse conditions, and proper food labeling. It was the result of a public outcry following Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, which exposed the gross underbelly of the meat industry. Mary was offered this post in part because Harvey W. Wiley, and we're going to be learning about him later this month on October 18th. Harvey was one, was the one actually, who had pushed this Food and Drug Act through, and he needed someone exceptional to run this new department. He was aware of the rampant sexism in the industry and everywhere else, so he had Mary submit her qualifying test under a pseudonym, with only initials for her first name to disguise her gender. She had the highest score, and she was hired. When she walked into the lab on her first day of work, all of her male cohorts were just shocked at first. But when she got to work, they realized that she was the perfect person for the job. While she was at the food research lab, she created the national standards for the sanitary processing of chickens being raised for slaughter. She invented new and safer practices for transporting eggs. She invented a safe and efficient process for scaling, skinning, quick freezing, and dry packing fish fillets. She led investigations into proper refrigerated truck technology for food transport, and she worked for Herbert Hoover's World War I War Food Administration. Again, very lazy woman. The War Food Administration was in desperate need of her guidance as they had to transport massive amounts of food to soldiers and there needed to be some kind of safety guidelines in place. So she jumps on a train and she traversed the country, holed up in the caboose. She watched how food went from farms and slaughterhouses to train cars and she kept track of the temperature changes and the humidity fluctuations. She ended up crisscrossing back and forth across the country over 500 times. She picked up and analyzed over 40,000 refrigerated cars of food, and she found that out of the 40,000, only 3,000 of them were safe for human consumption. All of this meticulous study led to the redesigning of the refrigerated train car and safer food transportation standards for the United States. For... All of her dedication and extraordinary work, she was awarded the 1919 Notable Service Medal from President Hoover. In 1912, she went into safety and refrigeration consulting on her own. She advised businesses on proper methods of storing, freezing, and transporting food. She also worked on refrigerator design, and she held patents for a poultry cooling rack, fridge insulation, and sterile food containers. Mary would never marry or have kids or retire. She worked right up to the year of her death. Um, she died on December 8th, 1952 at the age of 80. In 2002, she was posthumously inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. She was also the first woman elected to the Poultry Historical Society Hall. It sounds like a ballroom for chickens. In 1959, the recipient of the Garvin, she was also the recipient of the Garvin Olin Medal, and that is the highest honor given to women. That's kind of sexist. I don't like that. But it was the highest honor given to women from the American Chemical Society. And she's a member of the National Women's Hall of Fame and the National Inventors Hall of Fame. My sources today were Wikipedia, the National Inventors Hall of Fame, the National Women's Hall of Fame, Magster, and Sandvik. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Mary Engel Pennington. 
Please join me tomorrow when we celebrate the birth and life of Mary Ann Shad, abolitionist, social activist, teacher, attorney, the first black female publisher, and the first female editor in North America. See you then. <laughs>